So I guess the most appropriate question is, you know, is it now our experience that these seven factors not only are relevant but are actually real as forces of nature in the mind? Or are we still convinced this is some theoretical construct that the Buddha used or maybe it was real for him So I'll just make that point again, um, as I have over the past weeks, that when you're working at home with the studying, like looking over some of the readings, reflecting, sitting, talking with your friends, the whole uh, point with any of these maps is to bring it home to our experience. And, you know, it's like so many things in life, it's this chicken and egg in sort of gateway. If we don't, you know, with, without an understanding, we have to make an attempt, you know, without knowing whether these seven factors actually do exist in the mind, do actually map the mind as it already is, not later when we become a good meditator, but the mind is already mapped in this way. These qualities are already here. If we don't have that, if we're not willing to open to that, it's not clear we're going to discover them, in a sense, when we go looking for them. And uh, like tonight in my sit, you know, it's so wonderful to see, you know, to have, you know, I spent some time today, I got to spend some time today in a way that most of you, probably all of you didn't, reflecting on these seven factors and in particular energy and rapture. And, you know, just being aware of this factor of the mind that rises up to meet the predominant object, right? That's what energy is or persistence. It's the quality of mind, instead of shrinking away, is actually sort of rises up to connect. Oh, this is what's happening. This is what's being known. And so when I notice, like tonight in the sit, that, I mean, that's generally not a... uh, My mind tends to do that. That's a general strength of my mind, to connect. But when I found it wasn't connecting, you know, all I had to do was remember energy or that quality of mind that does that. And then it started to do that. It's really that simple, surprisingly. And for me, you know, it's more I have to, I, I need to get interested in the tranquilizing factors more than the investigation and the energy and the rapture. That tends to happen easily for me. So it's like uh, I'll be there remembering serenity you know, and then feeling some or knowing some and then remembering it. And then it's like my mind really wants to investigate serenity. But see, there's already too much investigation. So I I have to like ignore that quality. It's not that it's bad, but serenity hadn't really been brought to perfection yet or stillness or equanimity. So this is what I mean, I meant by the instruction during the sit, just getting a sense of what your mind tends to emphasize, tends to go to, 
Like we always play the same card. And then it actually ends up the defilements, the different ways the mind is tight, can hide behind those habits or take advantage of those habits. It's only the balanced mind that reveals things clearly as they are. So, you know, you may have a lot of rapture or you may have a lot of serenity, but that doesn't mean you're seeing things as they are because that depends on balance. And that's why it's really emphasized, you know, especially because we're taking this course. Let's really uh, become fluent in these seven factors. Really get a direct sense of what they are, how they work together. So every, every sit, every day when we're sitting, at least we're part of the sit, we're involved in this play, this creative play of bringing to mind our study, right? At the very basic level, our study is we've memorized the seven factors. We know the names, right? So at least that level, everybody can play. And then if you've done more reflection, more study, then you can bring more to that, that sort of invitation, because you have your past experience, you have your, your reflections, what you've read, what you've heard. So when you bring to mind investigation or bring to mind one-pointedness or concentration or serenity, it, uh, it's really how we shape our experience. And really, this is, this is where our practice, I mean, Part of our practice, you know, the real grunt level of practice is the restraint of the senses. You know, we're cleaning up our life in this way, not letting our mind and then our body run down, run down streets that somehow we realize we don't want to run down anymore. But after we clean up that level of life to some degree, and we're not making a lot of messes every day by speaking in you know, inappropriate ways, acting in inappropriate ways, and then receiving the reverberations of all that unskillful speech and action, then mostly practice is um, getting a sense of responsibility for what we're paying attention to and how we're paying attention to it. And a lot of us as you know, people interested in Buddhist practice, we, we kind of learn one move in the Buddhist teachings, which is, you know, pay attention to what's difficult. Just put your mind, look at what's painful, you know. You're feeling frustrated, we, oh, it's frustration, let me look at that, let me open to that. Or I'm bored, well, we look at that. You know, my body hurts, or I look at that. But we need to um, understand that what we pay attention to and how we pay attention to that object, it sets in motion the future. It sets everything in motion. So if we get in this place where all we're doing is looking at difficult experience, it won't be long <laughs> before life starts to feel really heavy, even though our initial motivation might have been quite skillful. So there's a story, I don't know if I didn't listen to Joseph's talk on... Uh, Rapture. I don't think he mentioned it in the talk on energy, but he, t- he mentions this story quite a bit of a time he was practicing in Burma. 
with Saida Upandita, this really well-known Burmese meditation master and monk. And uh, Joseph was somewhat stuck. Nothing was happening, unpleasant. And uh, so at some point, after you meet with the teacher every day in that system, or almost every day in that style of practice, and after several days, Saida Upandita said to Joseph, reflect on your sila, reflect on your ethical conduct. And Joseph always tells the joke, you know, I thought, oh, I must be doing something wrong. And Saida corrected him. No, it's <laughs> the point is you're going to feel good. <laughs> you know, your sila is good. So you reflect that you're living a wholesome life. You're not harming other people. Your motivation to come to Burma and practice is really good to sit, you know, to do the follow the schedule. All of that is really wholesome. And, you know, that is a cause for rapture to arise. Just making that effort to remember and to look in that particular direction. And then that can change the whole picture, the whole sort of uh, unfolding of the mind when we bring some rapture, some joy in. So one of the telltale signs that you're, um, you're getting a sense of these seven factors of awakening is it makes you happy to think about them. Like, you know, you're there at work or you've got your time in the evening when you do your reading or you do your, your meditation practice and it occurs to you or you just remember, oh yeah, the seven factors of awakening. And if you get a little joy... That's a good sign. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, if you think about other places in your life where there's, where there's like a, a reservoir, a joy, maybe a relationship that is really working. Maybe not now, but maybe at some point it really worked. And at those, in those days and those moments, you know, you think about it and there just joy would arise. Or some part of your life is really going well. You really, right now at work, you're feeling competent. You're feeling appreciated. It's, your work life is humming along or some other part of your life is humming along. And it just brings a sense of satisfaction to mind, happiness to mind. And this is really important that we begin to have this relationship with the mind, that we see the mind as a, essentially a beautiful thing, the most beautiful thing. It doesn't mean it's... Um, fully manifested doesn't mean that there aren't dark clouds that we're visiting a lot of the time, getting lost in even. But we have some faith, some sense that there's something really wonderful and beautiful. Whether you want to use the seven factors of awakening to to map it or describe it or not isn't really important. But that initial faith or confidence that there is something I think is really important because without that, we don't, we don't bring the enthusiasm to the practice. We're not interested in the continuity of mindfulness. We're not interested in looking deeply, listening deeply, that investigative quality. We're not interested in rising to meet the next object. We don't see it as relevant. We're not interested in that movement of joy in the mind, that feeling of aliveness or stillness or quiet or equanimity. 
So I want to spend some time talking about rapture, but before I move on to rapture, um, we didn't we talked a lot about the meditation practice last week for those who weren't here and a little bit about energy, but I wanted to just check in about energy. Um, I mentioned last week I had listened to Joseph's talk on energy, which I thought was very good. If you want more background, I highly recommend it. And I think it was there we talked about, you know, to think of the mind as a two-year-old. And, I mean, the conditioned mind, the thinking mind is like a two-year-old. And, and energy is like the parent that's willing to meet the child at every turn. You know, the child runs over here towards the electric outlets, you know, and you're there, you know, and the child does this and you're there. And there's that kind of vigilance. But, you know, it doesn't help to get tight. So that effort, it isn't forced. It's, it's really the expression of love, you know, the compassion and love that a mom or a dad would have for their kid. And maybe they'd even be able to make a game out of it or... You know, they keep it light and the redirection and the showing up. So there's that, you know, effort. It's really a willingness to show up. It's not like we're forcing the mind to show up. We're discovering the part of the mind that's willing to show up. That feels uh, not obliged so much. It's just like, uh, it's, that's my job. My job is to show up. So there's part of the mind whose job it is to show up and to meet whatever's predominant. And it's really uncovering that. And then with all the other factors, we're learning, you know, with the effort and all the other factors playing, we're learning like when energy or effort is too tight and when it's too loose. So we talk about mindfulness Revealing that, you know, the, the tracking, the continuity of awareness will show. And how does it show? Well, if it's too tight, then the too tight effort is going to lead to suffering. You know, it's going to lead to pain. And that continuity will see that the tightness, something's off. Because the mind and one's experience is cycling in the direction of, you know, feeling weighed down, feeling gluey, tight, confused. And when the energy, the efforting is too loose, again, if there's mindfulness tracking, there will be consequences if it's too loose. If there are no consequences, why do we think it's too loose? Do you know what I mean? The only way we know that a factor is off, you know, whether it's energy or or any quality of mind, the only way we know something is unskillful is by tracking it with mindfulness. And by definition, if there are unskillful qualities at play in the moment, we're going to cycle toward hell. It's going to get heavy and difficult. And mindfulness isn't just taking the surface because if we're just aware of the surface... As I start obsessing about something, it might be really juicy obsessing about something. But mindfulness has the depth. So we're not just seeing the juice of that thinking, but we're feeling, in a sense, the energetic consequences of the greed or aversion that's tied up in the obsession. So any questions about 
energy or effort that come to mind? Anything you'd like to say just about your own experience of seeing the mind rising to meet uh, the experience? Yeah, Rebecca. This is more than just energy, though. This is the whole set of factors. Thank you, Rebecca. And I think that's that's the, definitely the direction we move. And remember, the whole path is about a radical shift in how we relate to the world, the world of our family, the world of possessions, the world of identities. And the what greases that wheel of letting go is the deepening understanding of the nature of the mind. And 
these seven factors is a is a uh, a pretty accessible way into that. It's and I guess we could even say we need this because they're pleasant. These seven factors are pleasant qualities. It, it's easy for us as in our kind of our conventional mind states to get interested in them. And they draw us in. And just as Rebecca says, we see that they, they are universal characteristics. So it's the one stable thing. The mind is the one stable thing. The mind, capital M mind, not the particular thought or emotion that we have in the mind or that's coloring the mind right now. And now, whether you use the word the mind or the present moment or you know, whatever other word you might want to use, this is what we're turning toward and developing it as a refuge. Thanks again, Rebecca, for sharing that. Any other comments about energy before we look a little bit more deeply into rapture? And we can come back to it at the end when we I'll save some time for discussion. So maybe I'll just make a general point about all seven. And uh, I sent out today to the email list the uh, Ajahn Tanisaro's translation of the discourse the Buddha gave on feeding and starving the hindrances and the seven factors of awakening. And you might remember that the hindrances and the seven factors are often used as a teaching pair. The hindrances... uh, Um, aversion and greediness, restlessness, dullness, and doubt. And then paired with, you know, the seven factors as the positive side. So in a way, uh, we can talk about the balance of mind, the seven factors coming into balance, as the five hindrances retreating from the mind, being suppressed or disappearing from the mind. And in this particular discourse, the Buddha, I think, uses a very powerful, useful image about feeding and starving. And I like it. And I mentioned this in the email that I sent. Um, just I put a couple sentences and, and then included the link to the discourse. But I mentioned that, you know, the nice thing about that image of feeding and starving is it really... Puts, there is a responsibility. We have a responsibility. In fact, in every moment, we're, eat, we're feeding certain qualities of mind and we're starving other qualities of mind. So we might as well be awake to that process of feeding and starving because it's happening anyway. Every moment, because of how we're relating and what we're relating to, what we're paying attention to, we're feeding and starving things. And you'll see when you read the discourse that it all has to do with you know what you're paying attention to and whether you're paying attention to it in an appropriate way. And that's that determines what you're feeding and what you're starving. So, you know, if we're feeling a lot of greed and we pay attention to the greediness itself in an inappropriate way, we're feeding the greed. We're kind of whipping it up. And this is often how we do Uh, deal with our problems in life. We look at them. But we just feed them by looking at them because there's no wisdom in the looking. We're looking at the the anger or we're looking at the craving 
but there's, because there's no wisdom, we're identified with it. We don't, we don't want the craving to increase, but we just don't know what we're doing. So we're, we, we don't realize that we're feeding exactly the state of mind that we want to get rid of. I mean, this is what we call obsession, where some, on some level, we're trying to extinguish this very painful spinning of the mind. But what we're actually doing is just feeding the spinning. So just understanding that there are ways to feed and ways to starve. We can feed and starve unwholesome states of mind, the hindrances, and we can also feed and starve the wholesome states of mind. Obviously, we want to feed the wholesome and starve the unwholesome. So in terms of feeding wholesome states, right, the, the formula is, you know, like with the mindfulness, and I think I read this the first week or the second week. Now, what is the food for the arising of unarisen mindfulness as a factor of awakening? For the growth and increase of mindfulness as a factor of awakening, once it has arisen, there are mental qualities that act as a foothold for mindfulness as a factor of awakening. Right? So, there are certain things, if you pay attention to them, will increase mindfulness. Same with investigation, same with energy, same with rapture, serenity, concentration, and equanimity. And if you pay attention to these things, they'll get stronger. So this is what we're, this is what I meant about playing around. And like I mentioned tonight with uh, serenity, you know, it's like the mind actually finds something to pay attention to and it needs to pay attention to it in the right way. Well, what's the right way to pay attention to something without greed and without aversion, right? It's called mindfulness. So just being mindful, not in a hurry to develop serenity, not doubting that serenity will arise, you know, getting drawn into doubt, one of the hindrances, not too lazily, not too energetically, not greed, not aversion, right? All of the absence of the hindrances means we're being mindful. That's what mindfulness is. And so... Just and then maintaining that clear scene. So when when you see one of the wholesome qualities of mind and you see the wholesomeness of it, that means you're directly experiencing that particular quality of mindfulness or energy or investigation or rapture, serenity, concentration, equanimity. You're seeing the pleasantness of it. But this is a different kind of pleasantness. It's the pleasantness of letting go as opposed to like the pleasantness of getting what you want or getting rid of what you don't want. So there's a worldly pleasantness like when you get rid of something you don't like or get something you do like. But this pleasantness is a little different than that. There's a particular discourse where the Buddha and and Sariputta are there with Anattapindika. Some of you know the Discourses and know that Anatta Pindaka uh, was one of the most uh, well-known lay devotees, devotees of, of the Buddha. Very wealthy man, and had uh, given the monks and nuns a lot of a, a beautiful park to a monastery to practice at, and fed them a lot. 
And once he arrived with 500 other lay followers and they had uh, given the monks and nuns the requisites, food and, and uh, robes and things like that. And the Buddha said to them afterward, um, let's see, but you shouldn't rest content with the thought we have provided the community of monks and nuns with robes, alms food, lodgings, medicines. So you should train yourself. Let's periodically enter and remain in seclusion and rapture. That's how you should train yourself. And uh, Venerable Sariputta liked what the Buddha said and sort of praised the Buddha. You know, oh, how nice not to just let them be content on the joy of generosity but to encourage them to develop, you know, to seclusion just means it's not just about going off into the woods. It's really about, for a layholder, you know, the reason he says seclusion is letting go of your duties and responsibilities, letting go of what you got to do tomorrow, letting go of the mistakes you made today, right? So that's what we have to do when we sit every day. We're going into seclusion. We're letting go of this idea that I'm a person with responsibilities, our only responsibility is to be present with the breath, with the seven factors, with the hindrances, so we can starve them. And then uh, Sariputta does a little riff off of the Buddhist teachings. Sir, when a disciple of the Noble Ones enters and remains in seclusion and rapture, there are five possibilities that do not exist at that time. It's kind of funny English, right? So when you do seclude yourself, when you do open to rapture, there are five things, uh, five possibilities that don't exist. So this is the definition of being secluded and in the state of rapture. The pain and distress dependent on sensuality, on sense experience, do not exist at that time. Right? The pleasure and joy dependent on sensuality, sense experience, do not exist at that time. So that's when the mind is secluded and feeling rapture, then the pain in the body, for example, isn't a problem. Or uh, excitement, you know, like about being having rapture even, that sort of egoistic feeling, oh, I got what I want. That's not making an imprint in the mind either. And he goes on. So... The pain and the pleasure of sense experience does not exist at that time. You know, they're talking about a deeper state, but you can see this just as the beginning, like a, a beginning retreating from pain, ordinary pain and pleasure of sense experience. It's just retreating from the mind as a significant object. It's just distant. So, for example... You did something really embarrassing in the day and your heart still hurts from it. You know, just the memories and just some shame or embarrassment. And then you're developing your sit. And you get some continuity of mindfulness. You start noticing the seven factors and there's rapture and there's serenity and investigating the coming into some balance. And, and the mind is now more and more secluded from whatever was reverberating in the mind or whatever's reverberating in the body, in the mind meaning the, in terms of content. 
and in the body in terms of sensation. The mind is literally retreating. You'll feel that retreating. And so the pleasantness or unpleasantness of whatever's going on becomes a relatively insignificant factor. And what becomes the more significant factor, of course, is the mind itself, capital M, the unification of the mind itself. Or the mind not distracted by sense experience. And so he goes on, because there were five things, right? Five possibilities that do not exist at the time. So not uh, the absence of pain and pain and pleasure due to sense experience. And then he goes on, he says, the pain and distress dependent on what is unskillful did not exist at that time. The pleasure and joy dependent on what is unskillful do not exist at, uh, at that time. Right? So, basically saying that uh, when you've retreated from the world, you can't be unskillful. Because what does unskillfulness mean? It means being clinging to something of the world, to some sense experience, some thought, some sound, some smell, some taste, some touch, right? Liking it or disliking and being caught in the liking and disliking. But the mind has retreated from the sense world and it protects the mind from doing something unskillful. So that's like, uh, you know, different teachers who say, well, you want to develop, you know, you want to develop your ethical conduct? Get concentrated. <laughs> because when you're concentrated, in that moment at least, or in those moments at least, you know, it's not possible to do something unskillful because the mind has retreated, has, uh, has sort of has immunity for a while from sense experience, anything you might think or feel. And so it's not, there's no aversion or greed to be triggered. There's nothing to trigger it. And then he ends this by saying, the pain and distress dependent on what is unskillful did not exist at the time. When a disciple of the Noble One enters and remains in seclusion and rapture, these five possibilities do not exist at that time. Oh yeah, and so the fifth one here, I just kind of read over it. Um, the pain and distress dependent on what is skillful do not exist at that time. So there is pain and distress when we're sometimes skillful, like just, uh, like it might be skillful when we're inclined to obsess about something, but we keep the attention with the breath. And this is the interesting thing about effort or energy. You probably have noticed this. You know, as we're kind of getting some momentum in our practice, uh, sometimes the, the quality of energy is quite intense. So it's like the mind really wants to go back to the obsessive thought, really wants to think about the future, really wants to complain about the pain in the knee. But we're, we're sort of redirecting it and in a sense holding it, inspiring the intention to stay with the breath, to stay with a more neutral object because we know if we let it go here or go there, it's going to pick up aversion or greed right, and going to get caught up. So we really hold it there. And it's sort of like that effort, in a way, burns away the inertia. Sort of just making that hard, that sort of intense effort can be unpleasant. It would be a lot easier just to let our mind go back to the obsessing, go back to the complaining, 
go back to the fantasizing, right? That would be the easy way. So there is unpleasantness sometimes with unskillful, but it's, it's sort of like hurts good in a way because we know it's good for us. That's why we do it. But even that unpleasantness of what's skillful falls away because one of the things that happens as the mind begins to retreat and the balance of mind develops and the mind releases its fixation on sense experience. And it releases its fixation on sense experience when the, when the uh, experience of the mind itself, the unifi- unified mind itself, becomes more obvious. Sort of the attention, or attention which mostly goes out into the world, which includes thinking. Thinking is part of the world of sense experience, right? Now we've retreated, and so the awareness, the object, is the mind itself, is the wholeness of the mind itself. And so the mind is immune from these five things, pleasant and unpleasant sense experience, and uh, what was the other one? Oh, the pleasantness and unpleasantness of what's unskillful and the unpleasantness of what's skillful. So the only thing that's left is the pleasantness of what's skillful, right? That's the point. That's rapture. (laughs) That's rapture and serenity. That's the, the balance of mind itself. That is the pleasantness of what's skillful. Because in, you know, in Buddhism, skillful isn't being kind. Being kind is sort of a natural expression of a mind that has retreated from the world, retreated from aversion and greed for the world. Then kindness and compassion comes naturally. So what's skillful, you wouldn't say being kind is skillful. You would say the mind retreating from its habit of seeing or acting out of greed and aversion It's the retreating from that that's skillful. And the pleasantness of that is what remains. And the kindness, the kind acts, the generous acts, being forgiving, being patient, that's sort of like uh, icing on the cake. It just happens because the mind isn't caught in self-centeredness. It's retreated from self-centeredness. Self-centeredness is just the habits of greed and aversion. You know, whenever you look at your mind or heart, caught in self-centeredness, the active qualities of self-centeredness is greed and aversion and denial, you know, which is, of course, denial itself is just some kind of greed or aversion. So in the commentaries after the time of the Buddha, you know, they talk, they sort of outline rapture. They talk about, I'll just read the, a good place to study more about this is in uh, Saida Upandita's book, In This Very Life. It's a nice book. It's a little bit intense. You know, he's an intense person. <laughs> but it has a lot of good information. If you haven't read it, uh, it's a really good book to read at some point. So this is from Saida. When rapture occurs, coarse and uncomfortable sensations are replaced with something very soft, and gentle, velvet, and light. You may feel such a lightness of body that it may that it seems as if you were floating in air. At times, the lightness may be active rather than still. You may feel as if you're being pushed or pulled, swayed and rocked, 
or as if you're traveling on rough water. You may feel off balance, but it is nevertheless very pleasant. Now remember, rapture itself as a more generic quality of mind is neither... Um, it's, it, it occurs both with wholesome states and unwholesome states, right? So you can get rapture watching a movie. You know, if the, if the rapture arises when uh, the attention is constant and it's, uh, it's really the, the mind is sort of uh, tripping in a way on the unfolding experience. It's so there with the unfolding experience that the movement of the unfolding experience, whether it's the unfolding experience of a story or sensation or sound or all things together, that movement itself is like the mind absorbing into that movement itself is, uh, is energetically very alive and free, what we call rapture. So rapture has that, uh, uh, you know, it's often talked about in terms of physical sensation, but it's really a mind state. But the physical sensations, I'll just go through the um, five types and you'll just get a sense of the range of this. So again, this comes from Sayada's book, but it's, it's probably originally in the Vasudhimaga, this great manual written several hundred years after the time of the Buddha where somebody summarized the different meditation practices. And so there are these five types. Lesser rapture, when the hindrances have been kept at bay for sufficient time, includes chills and thrills of pleasure, right? Like goosebumps. There's a heightened energy in the mind, a delight in the mind. And then momentary rapture comes in flashes, can be more intense, like a rush of energy, or even, even, even more intense sudden experiences. Some of you have heard me mention once of just like a loud boom in the mind, just a, almost like an explosion in the mind. So it can be weird, <laughs> you know, these experiences, especially when you're doing more intensive practice, like you've been on a retreat for a while. Just that... Uh, it's really the mind has gotten associated with concepts in a sense of things being fixed by concepts. And remember, rapture, as I'm describing it, at least this is my best I can do to, to describe it, it's when, when the uh, attention is such that the mind is uh, clearly observing the unfolding nature of experience. Well, whatever fixed whatever there is that's fixed in the mind gets broken apart. So sometimes rapture can be quite intense. It's still pleasant, but it's intense because we've gone from a really fixed state you know, to the mind relating in a way that's very fluid. And right now, because maybe our practice hasn't developed sufficiently, that's, that's a, a bit of a shock to go from solid to flow. And so there can be some sparks. And these sparks, when the, the sort of conceptual <clears throat> and are just energetic and uh, um, awareness, when all that goes from something uh, apparently solid to something fluid, 
<coughs> when that that breaking apart happens, you can see there can be a full range. But when we get established in the flow more and more, then the rapture uh, becomes more pervasive. So the fourth kind, or the third kind, is called overwhelming rapture, like being swept off the ground. So more like a large wave of energy moving the body-mind. And then uh, the fourth is called uplifting or exhilarating rapture. So it's sort of a quality of lightness, or buoyancy in the mind and body. And then the fifth is called pervasive rapture. And uh, my experience of this, is, uh, as I understand it at least, is uh, it's like every cell in the body feels really good and has sort of a melting quality. And it's like the body, it just, nothing wants to move. It the pleasantness of that, like everything. Uh, so again, uh, rapture is a natural arising. Our job as practitioners is just to understand the feeding and starving. Like what do we do that cuts it off? What do we do that allows it to blossom. And the key, of course, to begin, like I said at the very beginning, is to have a sense that rapture is already here. It's already available. It's just it's sort of an accident waiting to happen. And it's just a question of learning how to activate it. And then, uh, just even when you have, you know, your ordinary balance, whatever that is for you, you know, you're what you would call a good set or you're getting to a decent place in your meditation practice. That's the time to remember that these seven factors, according to the Buddha, this is a, a map that's universal. It's not about particular time and place, as Rebecca said. It's universal. And to just, you know, move through the list, bring to mind rapture, the idea of rapture, the word of rapture, and then just let it, let your experience be colored by remembering rapture. You know, you're still there, silent, present moment awareness, you know, or sustained, silent, focused, present moment awareness. So you're with your breath, let's say, breathing in, breathing out, but you just have the thought about rapture. And remember, you can use some of the images, like I mentioned, just the sense of movement. Like now, I know where to look in my experience just to see that vibration. You know, because when you look at vibration, you know, well, vibration is just vibration. Oh, it's just tingling. But when you really look at vibration in the mind-body experience, what is its characteristic? Well, vibration is not fixed, is it? The fundamental quality of vibration, however you feel that, in your heart, wherever, it's alive. When you tune tune into that aliveness, that movement of body-mind, wherever you find it in your field of experience, you just get interested in it. That's how you can, you, you know, these little tricks, you can bring in rapture. Just like with serenity, for me, I feel a kind of a, a pulling down, a pulling down into silence. 
or a melting down into silence. And again, it's not so much in the body or in the mind, it's everywhere. Now, you might find a way, a little trick, like a place to look in your body-mind experience that for you allows you to sort of pick it up, you know, ignite this sort of reflection. That there are these different... um, We have to help out, you know, there's a place for the map, the conceptual map, and these little images or uh, almost like memories from previous sits, previous experiences that you can bring online there in the middle of a sit or in your daily life to activate energy or effort, to activate investigation. Like for investigation, you know, just remembering movement, you know, just remembering that everything's changing. And that, you know, was that true? I mean, just to get interested in that can sort of heighten the quality of investigation. For mindfulness, continuity. It's like the not forgetting. For me, I'm just giving you my sort of tricks for the different qualities. But each of, you know, each of us, we have to find our own way in or our own way back to the seed of these seven qualities. And then we water them with appropriate attention or mindfulness. And when you look at that sutta, that's exactly what the Buddha says. It's the appropriate attention that feeds these wholesome qualities. Inappropriate attention would be, you know, getting greedy or being lazy. But to bring out the appropriate attention to sort of the due respect and to watch how these factors become alive, become dominant in the mind. So we have about 10 minutes left. Hopefully that was clear enough, but it would be good if you have some experiences from your own practice to share or questions about the talk. Next week we'll move on to talk about serenity and we'll have small groups. But what comes to mind? Yeah, Rob. Can you talk about um, these experiences outside of the sitting posture? I remember the first time I went to Hong Village, I think I was in rapture for one week. And yeah, yeah. I had personally no meditation experience. Well, remember, rapture happens for both wholesome and unwholesome reasons. So we have all bumped into rapture. You know, think of your first kiss. You know, because because that experience is so unknown and uh, and the mind is in a way um, so there in the experience. And there's a kind of a tumbling forward. There's that great line in one of Havisa's poems about tripping over joy. And I think, see that too because the mind, the habit of the mind, the thinking mind is to conceptualize, is to freeze up, to define what's going on. But when we get in experiences, like you go to a beautiful place like Plum Village and it's just like radiating wholesomeness in so many ways and there's a great master there. And, and we get into that place of just tripping over joy. And, uh, and the mind feels relatively safe in an environment like that, not defining it, you know, but just sort of getting swept along by the activities and whatever's next. Yeah, so there's... There's a lot of places. I mean, I feel rapture a lot now because I have a regular sitting practice and I do regular retreats. And so 
for me, uh, rapture, I can feel it all the time. And I can basically draw it up whether I'm sitting or not. There can be rapture. Oh, if I've been sort of in a relatively balanced place and then I just concentrate, just like pick up a book and start to read, I'll get a lot of rapture sometimes. Or just reading the news on the Internet. I'll get rapture. Just because the mind is like enwrapped. It's like that joyful interest. And... Uh, and it's sort of letting go of the world, world and just the flow of information through the mind, you know. So anything can be conducive to flow because flow is everywhere. There is nowhere that flow isn't. Even the most mundane idea is flow. It's only the mind fixing on concepts that master or that disguises flow. So you're absolutely right. It's everywhere. And it's just a matter of entering the moment fully, giving yourself fully to the moment, and rapture will arise out of that. It's the, it's the joy or the delight of the mind not fixed, not congealed around concepts or definitions. Any experiences to share that come to mind? Your first kiss? <laughs> sure. I want to go back to what you said about it being impossible to um, be unskillful when you when you retreated from the world and from sense experience. Um, would it, what if you what if you have have retreated and then uh, a lot of joy and rapture and, and hopeful states are coming up, but then you attach to that joy? Is that would that be unskillful then? Mm-hmm. But you would have retreated in order to be attached to it. The mind can move really fast. So you can move from being in a a retreated state to being caught very quickly, you know, getting attached and then recognizing you've sort of lost your balance and then getting angry, you know, and on and on like that. So, but then in the next moment, the, the quality of investigation could arise, energy rises to meet it, and that the fixedness of, of feeling bad that you've lost your concentration disappears into rapture, right? Because now it's flow. It's like the, the fixed idea that I've blown it just evaporates because nothing is solid. Everything's in flux. And that thought isn't replaced with the next thought I've blown it, right? Because now we're mindful. And so we're right back into rapture, serenity. Because rapture, it's like puts water on greed and aversion. And so that's that sinking feeling. Serenity is the recognition that there's not much aversion or greed in the mind. And so there's a sort of a settling, like a a deep hunger of the mind uh, of sort of fighting with and acting out greed and aversion. That all begins to settle down into serenity, leaving behind stillness, the absence of neurotic activity. That's the stillness. And the equanimity is sort of the blossoming of that stillness. When we're not, when greed and aversion isn't there, then it's almost like an awakening, like of uh, relating to the world in an impartial way, just allowing it to be or willing to let it be the way it is, willing to see it the way that it is. The true no spin zone. <laughs> There's a couple of minutes left if anybody. Yeah, Roger. 
Mm-hmm. And that may be more rapture than the... And I mean, it, you know, all of these factors aren't really distinct. They're just different facets of the same kind of balance. But that sort of, you know, the wave that just sort of brings the posture up can be a manifestation of rapture. Well, the energizing factors, <laughs> right? And so I would really just reflect on them. And you can just kind of go one, boom, 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 between interest or investigation, energy, and rapture. And so there in the sleepiness, you're seeing, can you get interested in it? Can you investigate? And what are you investigating? You're investigating the effect of the continuity of mindfulness. So keep that in mind. The seven factors are incestuous in this way. They're using each other to blossom. So the thing we investigate more than the object, like the breath or sleepiness, we're investigating the effect of the continuity of mindfulness of sleepiness or mindfulness of the breath. Because we're really seeing, what really activates the interest is we see that, my God, the continuity of mindfulness reveals a whole world that I previously have been missing. So that's what really activates the interest. It's like, oh my God, I have the key to, to reveal everything. It's called continuity of mindfulness. It opens up everything. And so if you can inspire yourself to have some continuity with the experience of being sleepy or with your breath or whatever, and... Uh, and just see how that affects that experience. How it's, all of a sudden it gets interesting, and the energy is willing to rise to meet it, and and the tripping over joy, you know, the opening up of joy, joyful interest. It's like it takes some discipline to do that because you're fighting. Yeah. And it's the key is what makes us helpless in the, with sleep is we feel defeated because we've made effort and nothing's happened. So the key is about making effort in the right place. So the continuity of mindfulness is basically the, always the first place to begin. Because without continuity of mindfulness, we're doomed. Because we're just going to be on the surface of things. And as long as we're on the surface of things, we're just totally under the influence of greed and aversion which is always going to lead to frustration and and tightness. So if you're going to emphasize anything, it's the continuity of mindfulness. Because that breaks through uh, the inertia of distractedness, of superficiality. And that is the veil of ignorance. I mean, that's really what we're caught in. We are caught in superficiality, or you could say... We are caught in the ignorance of misperceiving the way it is due to superficiality. And the superficiality is because we, we, haven't, we don't have enough confidence that the continuity of mindfulness makes a difference. But again, you know, it's, it's like a chicken and egg because 
the real continuity of mindfulness depends on these other six factors, right? They all have to happen together because we can think we're being continuous, but there isn't joy in it, there isn't serenity in it, there isn't interest in it. So it's not really the continuity of mindfulness. So it's it's always this art of a balance, like all those qualities really, mindfulness depends on all those qualities and it also brings all those qualities to perfection. So it's <laughs> that's our predicament. And of course, it's not easy to practice at night after a busy day, you know. But but still, we just want to use that time as effectively as we can. Walking, doing walking practice instead of sitting practice can be really useful. And you can get a lot of rapture in walking practice. It was the one of the first places where I could regularly access rapture was walking practice. Because it was really interest, easy for me, rather, to get a continuity of attention in walking. And just the right balance, not over-striving, not too dull. And I, I really found it walking at a normal pace, not in my slow walking at first, but in, in a sort of normal pace and even slightly fast walking with a big lane. It was like 150 feet. I go out to the parking lot at IMS and just sort of walk back and forth. It's cross country today. I, I did get into that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we can turn the exercise regimens into this, you know, Swimming laps, uh, maybe some of the mechanical things. I haven't really used them myself, but I would assume you can use those things pretty well because once you, once you learn it, you know you don't have to think too much. And and also running, especially if you're running in places you're very familiar with, so you're not the mind isn't inclined to sort of think about what you're seeing or where you're where you're at. Can yeah, they can really work. I have to leave it here. So let's just take a few seconds. Let go of the words. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.